Hi everyone, on today's More Than Words episode, we'll have Richard Zimler, the historical novelist and best-selling author. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation, it's a pleasure. Glad to be here, really glad. Thank you. Uh, so today we're having this conversation in English so we can get to a broader audience so everyone can know about your work and your um, staying in Portugal for 30 years. So uh, how's it been this last year for you? Well, pretty much like it's been for everybody else, I think, uh, a mixture of trying to stay calm and not panic <laughs> and trying to find out more and more information about COVID-19 and what I can do to protect myself and other people and trying to make my house as comfortable and quiet as possible. I, I have this, I have a novel called The Warsaw Anagrams in which one of the characters says that his definition of paradise is a place where the most quiet people win all the arguments. I and that's what that I passage. tried to make my, <laughs> my house into, the like quiet place where only people who are going to be nice to me can come in. <laughs> Yeah, and I've heard that you spent a lot of your quarantine or lockdown uh, cooking and crocheting. Is that true? That's true. Um, you know, I found that the confinement changed my work schedule because I used to work for 25 years or, or more. I used to do my best work in the morning when I was most alert, I think. And I would start right after breakfast and go to lunchtime. And I discovered that during the worst parts of confinement, when we had high levels of infections in Portugal and everywhere else, uh, I needed the morning to be really calm. So I would watch TV and listen to music and read and, um, you know, garden a little bit if I was mm -hmm. anywhere near our garden and, um, and only start working after lunchtime. I found I needed a real long time just to be by myself and not have any stress. Oh, that, that's good. So it changed a bit, but not too much. Uh, anyway, you like to work at home, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have a big advantage over most people, I think, because my whole life is confinement. I'm isolated. I, <laughs> I, I've since 19, I don't know, 94, about 93, I've been writing books. And so I spend four, six, eight, ten 10 hours a day alone in the parallel universe I'm creating in my novel, whether that's Lisbon in 1506 or the Warsaw Ghetto in the 1940s or the Holy Land 2000 years ago, that's where I am. That's my home. And Although so you're, you're I, never, sorry to interrupt, but you're never really alone. No, that's exactly I'm, right. Even, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm with my characters and I'm in my setting and that's my place where I need to be. And so I think I have a huge advantage because I'm used to spending entire weeks where I see no one except my husband and maybe a few shopkeepers where I buy food and supplies. Uh, and other people I know were used to going to meetings and being out with their kids and having a big social life and dating and going to bars and clubs. And, you know, that's just not me. So uh, for once, I had an advantage over everybody else. You already had a quiet life, so the change wasn't that big. Uh, and I found re really curious that you can crochet. Where did you learn how to crochet? <laughs> uh, my mom taught me how to crochet. I must have been like eight or 10 years old. Oh. And I liked it. And um, so I started making scarves. And then I stopped for many years, you know. Um, yeah. When we're in our 20s and 30s, we're, we're so active and busy and we're trying to 
we're ambitious and we're trying to, in my case, become a, a writer and publish novels and work with publishers and agents and bookstores. And, you know, there's no time for little mm -hmm. things. And then I guess about 10 years ago, I rediscovered crochet and I learned that there's a lot of stitches I didn't know about. So I bought books and now there's uh, tutorials on YouTube for people like me. And so exactly. I, I, I guess I made, I mean, it's crazy, it's insane, but when I, I, you know, TV doesn't keep me occupied. So I need something for my hands. It relaxes yeah. me. And, and it so keeps you busy. Yeah. I'm busy. I, I think I've probably made about 60 or 70 scarves over the last <laughs> six or seven years, which is a bit insane. I give some away and I keep most of them. That's really nice. Uh, you know, the first time I crocheted, it, I was like five years old. My oh, mom yeah. also taught me. Uh, and, you know, that old school thing of keeping your first loop uh, in the photo album with, mm. uh, with a yeah. lock of hair and all Great. the pictures were from where we were babies. Yeah, that's really nice that you can crochet. Well, and we that, have a, an amazing tradition of very talented, mostly elderly women these days who make the most amazing bedspreads and True. all sorts of home furnishing items with the most detailed, smallest, wonderful crochet. They're extremely talented people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so now moving a little bit uh, to your work, uh, you have books that were translated in 23 languages and have been bestsellers in 13 countries. Uh, so I know that when you were a kid, you read a lot of comics, but then you found mm -hmm. mythology. W mm -hmm. Was that the how you got into liking this all history um, thing and writing about uh, historical novels and historical characters, the ones that no one else talks about? Was that the way you started? <laughs> yeah, it was in a way. Um, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but I adore mythology. So Greek mythology is what I started with. Um, and then I moved on to Norse, you know, Nordic mythology. And, um, you know, that had to do with comic books, too, because, you know, in comic books, it's superheroes. And in, in <laughs> mythology, it's gods yeah. and said demigods with amazing power. So and then, um, you know, I, I studied comparative religion at university at Duke University. So I learned a bit about the old stories of Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and Buddhism and Sufism. And I love that. And it mixes with history. You're quite right, because um, it's it's virtually impossible to study mythology of, let's say, the Hindus without knowing a bit about Indian history. Uh, you know, when when was it settled? Uh, when did agriculture start? Uh, where did exactly. these gods come from? When did Buddhism begin in India and where did it spread to? And so, yes, I love I love history. I love mythology. And for me, that's that's my happy place, so to speak. Yeah, that's nice to know. It's very interesting from starting with comics and then going to mythology mm -hmm. and suddenly being writing these complicated books because you have to study a lot, right, to, to write your books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I got lucky because, again, I have my background is in comparative religion. So when I write, in, I have a novel called uh, Guardian of the Dawn, which is set in Goa, uh, the Portuguese colony in India yes. in the 17th century. And I already had the background for a lot of that book because I'd studied, you know, Indian history and Hinduism. And so for me, talking about the Hindu gods, whether it's Ganesha or any of the others, is not unusual for me. It seems perfectly normal or when they make an offering of flowers in, in front of a statue of, of, of Devi or, or Brahma or Vishnu or any of their uh, representations. You know, for me, that's perfectly normal. So 
Uh, I think I have a big advantage when it comes to writing about some other cultures and, and distant times in history. I have uh, the Gospel according to Lazarus is set in the mm -hmm. Holy Land 2,000 years ago. Well, I'd already read the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I begin my research with already a, a good, solid background, which mm -hmm. I do think makes a big difference. Yeah, sure. Uh, you were talking about the Gospel according to Lazarus, which is your uh, latest uh, publishing in uh, abroad in English, right? Right. But in here in Portugal, uh, the latest was on Holy Ghost in, in Submitsch. That's right. Yeah, yeah but that that book, that's a very curious story because I originally published that book in the English speaking world in 1996. I, I know I was going to ask about <laughs> that. Why did you have to wait 24 years to, to publish it? Well, it's a book that break some taboos here in Portugal. Those of us who know the country well and who've been here for more than just a few years understand that Portugal has made a huge evolution socially, politically, spiritually over the last 30 and 40 years. Um, you know, this used to be a religious dictatorship for centuries when we had the Inquisition and then a fascist dictatorship under Salazar until 1970, you know, the 1970s with the revolution. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrote that book on Holy Ghosts, uh, it's, it's about a young musician, a classical guitarist in Porto, who becomes seropositive, you know, HIV positive, and who has a terrible relationship with his father, who would prefer that his son not be, uh, be homosexual. And, um, you know, so I was breaking all these taboos, homosexuality, HIV, AIDS, a father who forbids his son to live the life he wants to have. And my publisher, uh, Maria de Piedad, said, you know, you could deal with a real bad backlash. The critics could be could crucify you. Uh, the book could sell no copies. And worse than that, um, I had to apply for a visa every year to remain in Portugal okay. uh, because I wasn't born here. I wasn't a citizen then. And if the, uh, you know, ministry refused to renew my visa, I'd have to leave Portugal and my husband, Alex, would have to leave and we'd both have to abandon our projects. You know, me, my novels and teaching. Alex was started a huge institute for biomedical research and we'd both have to leave. Well, obviously, I couldn't risk that. So I censored the book. And now it's okay. 2021. People here understand a bit more about a pandemic understand more about what AIDS meant to those of us living in the 1980s and 1990s. And so I thought, okay, Portugal has evolved. Now is a good time to see if, see if they like the book. Okay. Yes, because it has come a long way, really, in these last years. And in you, of all people, should know the difference because you've been living here for 30 years now. Right. Uh, so apart from the, the side that we always have blinds and curtains closed all the time, <laughs> what are the main differences did you find when you got from America to Portugal in 1990, right? Well, the most difficult part for me was making friends, because if you've been to America or Brazil, Brazil is very similar, similar to the United States. We're very informal and, um, you know, America has lots of problems. I don't want to say that things are perfect there. Obviously, they're not. They're terrible and they were terrible under Trump. And we have a very violent society and a crazy 75 million people who voted for Trump. But we have an informal society where people make friendships more easily. So foreigners often have the experience of going to a restaurant or a museum in New York or San Francisco or L.A. or Milwaukee. And they meet an American couple. And after five minutes of talking, 
they're invited to their house for dinner or for lunch or for a barbecue. And that's normal for us as, in America. Well, that's completely abnormal for Portugal. When I got here in 1990, people didn't want to talk about their personal lives. They were happy to talk about art and a little bit about politics and philosophy and football and music, but they would never mm -hmm. tell me what was going on in their heart. And they never wanted to hear about my difficulties. And I was having a lot of difficulties because I'd moved to a foreign country. Uh, one of my older brothers had just died of AIDS. My mother was alone. I had a new job and I needed to talk about myself, but they didn't want to yes. hear about it. And so I, I have this limitation where I can't make a close friend without being able to talk about what's going on in my life and without the other person reciprocating. And so it took me many years to, to make good friends here. And now I do have good friends, but it, it was not easy. Yeah, after that, you spent a, a long time trying to adapt, of course, and you learned our language. You, you speak beautifully Portuguese. Thank you. Uh, you have many friends for sure. And that uh, perspective has changed a little, right? So during these oh, yeah. 30 I, years, it, it changed a lot. I think your generation and even younger people, um, they're very different in the way they approach almost everything, but friendships in particular. Um, and gay and lesbian issues and politics. And, um, and so I think for the younger generation of Portuguese people, they're much more comfortable talking about what's going on in their hearts and minds, much more open, uh, much freer of, you know, the conservative traditional elements of Portuguese society, whether that's, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of sin and Catholicism or what your parents want you to do. And, um, and so I think young people in general are, are, are much freer and open. Uh, it, I'd still like to see more openness and more evolution, mm -hmm. but we'll see what the coming years bring us. Yeah, we'll be waiting for that anxiously to see if we can <laughs> evolve in that sense at least. Uh, so going back a little bit to, to your relationship with Portugal, Portugal was, was determinant in the, the way you started to publish your books because uh, The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon, uh, it was published in Portugal uh, first after right. various refusals from American publishers. So uh, at the time, how did you feel about that? Because it must have been very hard to be refusing your own country in your motherland and then coming to Portugal and having the opportunity to finally do that. Yes, it was a strange and very depressing time for me. Um, I took one year to research the last Kabbalist to Lisbon because it takes place in Lisbon in the early 16th century. And I needed to do know about daily life. I needed to know about clothing and food and how, how people built their houses and were the streets paved. You know, there's all these questions about daily life. Um, and it took me a long time to research that because there was no one book then about daily life in Portugal in the 16th century. So I had to read literally dozens okay. of books and take notes. And then it took me two years to write the book. So that was three years of my life. And then another two years, 24 American publishers turned the book down. And they all basically said, you know, this is a really thrilling novel based on a true story, the Lisbon Massacre of 1506, in which 2,000 converted Jews were murdered and burnt in the main square, the Rocio. Um, you know, they all said this is a great book, but it won't sell because, as we know, Americans have a geographical problem. They most Americans think the world begins in Maine and Florida and ends in California and Hawaii. 
So Lisbon yeah. in 1506 was off their radar. It's not a problem for readers, curiously enough. It's a problem for literary editors who are exactly. much more closed-minded because they want to make big profits. Um, and so I had a crazy idea, which is proof that crazy ideas can save us, which was to show the manuscript written in English to a Portuguese publisher. Uh, to make a long story short, I showed it to the first publisher on two different lists that were given to me by friends of publishers, and she loved the book. She had it translated, and it came out in April of 1996. And she warned me that, you know, the book might not sell any copies because I was writing about an event that Portuguese people would prefer not to know about. Uh, you know, this was a crime against humanity, a pogrom, a riot in which 2,000 forcibly converted Jews were murdered and burnt in the main square that's still at the center of Lisbon. So she said, look, you know, uh, there, you, you might not sell any copies. But the exactly the opposite happened. I think a lot of people were curious about Portuguese history in, in, in Portuguese Jewish history, which yeah. was another taboo topic. Uh, you know, during the dictatorship, that was not something you were supposed to talk about. And, um, and so this curiosity helped the book sell and it became number one on the bestseller list two weeks after it was out. And which was amazing and strange because it had been turned down by 24 American publishers and now it was number one in Portugal. So it was wonderful and, and bizarre at the same time. And then um, that was how we were able to sell the rights in other countries because they saw the book was a success in Portugal. So we were able to sell rights in Italy and Germany and Brazil and a bit later in the United States and, and Great Britain. And so that was the start of my career. So do you believe you, you wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for this Portuguese publisher? That's a really good question. Um, you know, it's hard to know, to evaluate our own past and the directions our past has taken and where we'd be if it had, if we turned left instead of mm -hmm. right or met exactly. a different person. Uh, I guess, I think I'd still have a career because I wanted to be a writer and I was very determined to write good books. But I think my career would be different because maybe seeing that nobody was interested in the last Kabbalist of Lisbon, I'd probably have decided to write different sorts of books. Maybe I'd write a book set in the United States or a modern contemporary sort of novel instead of a historical novel. So I think my, my career would probably, I'd probably still be a writer, but I might have a, instead of the books I have, I'd have, I'd have different ones. There's a really funny story related to The Last Kabbalist of Lisbon uh, that I heard you talk about, which was when you met Marianne Faithful, who oh, yeah. really liked your book. How was it? Oh, that was amazing because, you know, I'm a child of the 60s, so I grew up on the Rolling <laughs> Stones and Marianne yeah. Faithful singing as tears go by. And um, so I read in a, I read in, I just by accident, I read in a French news magazine an interview with her where she said, they asked her what she was reading. And she said, oh, she's reading The Last Cabal of Lisbon and was loving it. But I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. So <laughs> I, I happened to be in Ireland for a book festival. And I have a Irish, I had an Irish friend who was a well-known writer there, Dermot Healy, a great writer. And um, Ireland's a small country like Portugal, so everybody knows each other. <laughs> and so I asked Dermot, can, I said, can you get me Marianne's address or phone number or something and he did have made a few phone calls and got me her address so i left a note in her mailbox saying you know here i am the author of the last cabal to lisbon i'm in ireland because she was living in dublin then 
can and we get that, together? That was very that was very bold of you just to go there and well, put a note in the mailbox. <laughs> well, she said she loved my book, so I figured the worst that can happen is she won't contact me, and that's fine. Sure. You know, we don't yeah. expect famous people to always contact us. So mm -hmm. I left a note, and then um, a couple of days later, I was at Dermot's house in Sligo, and the phone rings, and he answers it, and he says, "It's Marianne Faithful for you." which was, wow. you know, amazing. It's, it's like someone saying it's Mick Jagger for you, you know? Yeah. And so we had a, we had a really nice time. We spent the afternoon with Marianne and her manager and had a lovely time. And she's a very bright, a bit odd, but very bright, wonderful person. And I, I'm a big fan of her singing. Yeah, I know you, you love music as well, and you have studied a bit of music too. And you were, like you said, a Rolling Stones fan and a Beatles fan. Yeah. Uh, and you have lived in that, in that time. It must have been really interesting to experience that in the first person. Well, I think I got really lucky. I, I occasionally post on Facebook about concerts I saw, like Simon and Garfunkel wow. in, <laughs> in New York in 1967. And the first group, the opening act was The Doors. Imagine that, The Doors opening for wow. Simon and Garfunkel. And so, <laughs> you know, people, all sorts of young people write to me and say, oh, I, I'm so envious you got to see The Doors, you know. Yeah. And so I saw George Harrison twice and Paul McCartney and I've seen The Rolling Stones and Simon and Garfunkel at least three times and Leonard Cohen and and and. Judy Collins in North Carolina mm -hmm. and Joni Mitchell, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash. So mm -hmm. I feel really lucky that I've had a chance to see people who've changed the world um, because I, you know, I consider the Beatles um, some of the most important people of the 20th century that they changed so much. They did. And uh, is it true that the first record you bought was from the Beatles? Yeah, That's Meet the, the Beatles. Age of eight or something? Yeah, yeah. Meet the Beatles, 1964. <laughs> I Want to Hold Your Hand and some other big hits like that. Um, Love Me Do, I think, was on it. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been listening to, to rock and roll since I was eight years old, which maybe explains why I'm a bit odd myself. <laughs> uh, and that's just one of the moments in history where you were present, because when you were a very young age, I know that you've been in protests against the Vietnam War with your father. Uh, how did that impact you uh, growing up? Well, you know, both my parents were very politically minded. They didn't always participate in events because we were living in the suburbs and it wasn't always, you know, easy to get to Manhattan or so, but they were very political. My father often discussed politics. He was very left wing. Um, you know, growing up Jewish in America in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of people who didn't like Jews being in the United States. So, you know, that made them very political at a very young age. Um, and then I had an older brother uh, who was at university in the 1960s. Obviously, that was a time of protest against the Vietnam War. And so uh, at a very young age, it, you know, I was always thinking about, you know, uh, Native American rights and uh, civil rights movement with, with the African-Americans, Martin Luther King, um, and later gay rights, feminism. I've always been, I don't say, I wouldn't say I've been very involved in it and I'm not a very overtly political person. But I do express my opinions, uh, and I was involved in some minor way, for instance, in, in the gay rights movement in San Francisco. 
I was so, going to, to ask about that. Were you yeah. in San Francisco when Harvey Milk was advocating for gay rights? That's right. Harvey was the first elected official in the United States who was openly gay. So it was very exactly. important. Harvey was very charismatic, funny, nice person, not at all formal or standoffish. He was very friendly. I knew him when he still had a camera shop in the Castro, which was one of the gay neighborhoods in San Francisco. So we would go to the camera shop when we needed mm -hmm. film and you know we'd see we'd see his lover scott and sometimes harvey was there in his suit because he was working in city hall back then and so so sometimes we would joke around and talk and um and yeah i mean harvey was an important person for everybody yeah, in the gay movement and i always remember him saying to me um you know, when your postman comes out and you know he's gay and when your kid's favorite teacher at school uh, comes out and we know she's a lesbian. When the pe when we're surrounded by people who come out of the closet and we realize they're great people and normal people and just like us, then the prejudice and the hatred will end. And so I always think about that when I talk about my own sexuality uh, in the hopes that young kids will be able to live freer and more happier and more genuine lives and that the prejudice will end. Exactly. So uh, San Francisco must have a special meaning for you. That's where you moved after a while living in, in New York. And you, you met El Chant, your husband there as well, in the year I was born. <laughs> Curiously. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then I know that you, you took some time uh, to travel maybe in the years before, right? So how important is traveling to you? You got to meet uh, Europe and yeah. anywhere else? Well, Europe was extremely important to me um, because no one in my family had ever traveled, you know. Um, but you, my were parents were from, you were descended from Europeans, right? Your grandparents right. were from Poland. Yeah, exactly. My grand, all, all four of my grandparents um, emigrated to the United States, immigrated to the United States around 1905. And my parents were born in New York, um, but my parents never traveled um, for various reasons. And so I grew up hoping that one day, you know, I'd be able to go to Europe or Australia or South America. And I did. So the first trip I took was to Europe. I stayed four and a half months. I was one of those American kids back in the 1970s <laughs> with a backpack, you know, and sleeping out on the street on occasion when I couldn't afford a hotel. Um, and I had a wonderful time. The first part of it was a music program because I was studying classical guitar back then. So I studied music and gave small concerts with other kids in Europe, in Italy, uh, for the first um, six to seven weeks. And then I traveled with a friend for another, you know, seven, eight weeks. And I loved it. It changed my life because, you know, one moment I'm in New York, Kennedy Airport flying to Italy. And the next moment I'm in Assisi, one of the most beautiful towns mm -hmm. in the world, um, staying in the house of an Italian family in a small cot and the streets are ancient cobblestones the churches there was no mass tourism back then so we could go to the church of san francisco and all the other places of worship in assisi anytime we wanted i could see the frescoes by giotto anytime i wanted um and suddenly it was like i was in a medieval city and i thought wow i don't have to live my whole life in america mm -hmm. i can i can do whatever i want and i think it Traveling can give us that amazing sense of freedom and that amazing sense that what we thought our lives were isn't, isn't what our lives can be. Our lives can be much bigger and broader 
and we begin to doubt our own assumptions about the way people should think and behave because Italians, like Portuguese people, think very differently from Americans about all sorts of important topics. Exactly. And so suddenly I realized, you know, my life can change. Mm-hmm. And at that time, did you visit Portugal or is it was just no. later? Later. No, I only came to Portugal for the first time in 1980 uh, after I met Alex, uh, who was from Mozambique uh, and who was a professor at the University of California in Berkeley. And when we mm-hmm. fell in love and started living together, he would come to do summer school teaching in Porto for two to three weeks every every summer. And um, so I started coming with him. And that's how I that's why I, I first knew Porto. And then I w- mm-hmm. we would visit Lisbon because uh, my father in law, his dad was living in Lisbon at the time. So I got to know a little bit about the country and travel around. Mm-hmm. So Alshand was teaching, teaching, but you also teach in Porto. Do you miss that part of your life being a teacher? Yes and no. Um, I taught for 16 years journalism, different aspects of journalism, and I loved it. It was great having contact with bright kids and, you know, teaching was important for me because I learned how to speak in front of other people and stop being so nervous and to prepare well and to do a good job. And, you know, it, it, it relaxed me in terms of doing what we're doing now, you know, talking over, mm-hmm. over the internet. I, I stopped yeah. being so nervous about it and realized <laughs> I could do a good job if I prepared. And so it was part of my growth, learning how to teach. And I, so I miss, I miss the contact with kids, but I don't miss, you know, the three days a week of marking papers and turning in grades and the bureaucracy. And I'm really very, very happy and lucky and fortunate to be able to make a living writing my novels. Yeah, and I've met one of your students recently, and I know that the feedback from your students was really good. They they really loved you as a teacher, so they must miss you. <laughs> well, they're very kind. I at the first years were very hard because I had to teach in Portuguese and I didn't know Portuguese, so my, I did a mixture of English and Portuguese. And you know, my first classes weren't so good; they were kind of mediocre because unless you can speak a language fluently, it's very hard to communicate sub subtle ideas and complexities. So that took a while for me to be able to do. Um, but you know what? The students always tell me that you were so different. You were so <laughs> such a breath of fresh air for us because you weren't like all, any of our other teachers. So I think to some extent I had that effect on them that I brought another culture into their lives, which is always useful. Exactly. Um, and the, uh, about your, your new projects, I know you're working on a new book in Portuguese. Um, the, the story will be in the seventh, 17th century. Right. right. Yeah. So what are you doing right now? You're still taking a long time or was it? Be yeah, I mean, easier? I didn't do this consciously, but the book is going to be enormous. I, I, <laughs> it wasn't my plan. My plan was to write, you know, 300, 350 pages, 400 pages. But I think it's going to be like a thousand pages. So I'm going to have to divide it into two volumes, I think because otherwise it's just too long. Um, and it, yeah, it takes place in the 17th century. It starts in a beautiful Portuguese village called Castelo Rodrigo, which I would recommend to everyone. Grand, old granite houses. It's hardly changed since the 16th, 17th century. It's on top of a small mountain or large hill. So it looks a bit like those Italian hill towns in Umbria or in Tuscany. And um, 
it's about the Inquisition, you know, this religious dictatorship that was in Portugal from 1536 until 18, around 1820, that persecuted mm -hmm. anyone with different ideas and persecuted converted Jews who were still practicing their religion and, you know, persecuted anyone who had a free mind, basically, or curiosity about the world uh, and put them in prisons and tortured them and Anyway, so it's it's about the effect of the Inquisition on this small village, and in particular on my narrator, who starts the book as a young boy and who doesn't understand, for instance, why his best friend suddenly disappears. You know, his best friend Lena and her parents just disappear, and no one will explain it to him because no one wants to explain about this religious dictatorship. They don't want children to understand what's going on and that the secret Jews are being persecuted. And so he grows up mystified by by what's happening in his village and angry and um it's about what happens to him and his family and um i'm nearing the end now uh i think i've probably got another couple months of writing to do and then i have to go back to the beginning and rewrite everything because oh. you know when you do a i never write a first draft this is like a sixth or seventh draft because i'm constantly rewriting but I need to go back to the beginning and, you know, check all the writing all the way through. So I'm not anywhere close to finishing it, but at least I'm close to finishing a sixth or seventh draft or something like that. Yeah, okay, so it's nice to know that we'll have new work from Richard Zimler coming soon or as soon as is possible. <laughs> as soon as I can finish it. <laughs> as soon as you can. So uh, this is a, um, another book where you had to study a lot and prepare a lot and read a lot of uh, documents and Absolutely. all that. Uh, do you think that the work of an author is a little bit like the, the work of an actor, for instance? I do, because um, I generally write in the first person. So in this case, my narrator, his name is Isaac, and he's a secret Jew living in this small village, Castel Rodrigo, and grows up with his dad and mom and his brother, small younger brother and sister. And so I have to sort of enter into him. I become Isaac, and I see the world from his point of view. And he has this wonderful best friend, Lena, and he goes up to her roof with her dad, and her dad teaches him the constellations and teaches him a little bit about Greek mythology because the constellations have to do with Greek mythology, of course. Mm -hmm. And he's he has the second family with them. And suddenly, from one day to the next, they disappear. And so I experienced that from Isaac's point of view, the anger that no one will tell him where they are. The worry, what's happening to Lena? Is she okay? Will she survive? And in the years to come, as he grows up, what happened to her? Will I ever see her again? Will I ever see her mom and dad again? And if people can just disappear from one day to the next, what can we count on? You know, it's, it's kind of an existential mm -hmm. philosophical question. What can we count on during a religious dictatorship? So you feel that in the first person. Absolutely. Um, are you one of those authors that when you start writing a book, you already know how it's going to finish or it depends on how the story goes during the way? I have no idea. I usually know what's going to happen in the first chapter. <laughs> but after that, I discover what the book wants to be. It's almost like it, it is like I'm discovering what the story would like me to tell. I know that sounds strange, but that's the only way I can do it because the first chapter determines the second chapter. 
the second determines the third and so on. So until I write the fourth chapter, how can I possibly know what's going to happen in the fifth chapter? It's impossible. And then as you're writing, you test different alternatives. And some of the alternatives seem very forced, usually because you're making a character do something that he or she wouldn't do. And so you have to test different alternatives and you pick the one that seems best to you, that seems the most moving or the most troubling or the most, you know, most depressing or, or shocking. And then you go from there. And so, no, I, and I have no idea what the ending is going to be. You know, I'm now that I'm nearing the ending, I, I kind of can glimpse it. But I still, I'm still not sure of what the last chapter is going to be. You know, I'll find out when I get there. Oh, that's really interesting. Do, do you still write your uh, books for adults in English and then translate it to Portuguese? Yeah, although I speak Portuguese fluently, okay. uh, <laughs> I, I can't write a novel in English. No, uh, writing a novel is too difficult, too, too demanding. It, it, it forced the author has to be able to evaluate all the different nuances. You know, if I choose a verb and it's too strong, I need to know that and choose a slightly weaker verb. Um, and, and the rhythm of the sentences needs to be right to my ear. The ear is extremely important for a writer. You have to develop this poetic ear to understand mm -hmm. the rhythm of a language, the sound of words. And I don't have that in Portuguese as well developed as I have that in English. Mm -hmm. I write children's books in Portuguese because they are... I was going to ask you about yeah. that because I know you're working on a new book for children, right? Exactly. Yeah. And there, of course, my language skills are, are almost good enough to do it. <laughs> I do need someone or more than one person to read it and proofread it and make sure... Because although I usually write Portuguese correctly in terms of grammar, I will occasionally say something in a very awkward way. It's grammatically correct, mm -hmm. yeah. but no Portuguese person would write it that way. Yeah. And so I need Alex and then my editor at Porto Editora to go over the story and check everything and make changes. And that's normal. I mean, even if you're a Portuguese writer, you need an editor to go over all your sentences and make sure they're okay and understandable. That, that's perfectly normal. When can we expect that that children's book? Well, that children's book is coming along pretty good. Um, I should be finished with it in the next couple of weeks. Then I'll give it to my publisher. And then we need illustrations. And that can take a while. So I'm thinking that the best thing for me would be to publish it probably in March or April of next year. Because it takes a while to prepare the book, especially sure. with illustrations and print mm -hmm. it. Um, And I'd love to have it out by the next book fair. Uh, we, we have a book fair coming up in Lisbon, which yeah. is a big event here in mm -hmm. September. But usually it starts at the end of May. So maybe next year we'll start it at the end of May, in which case it would be great to have a new children's book to sell. Okay, we'll wait for that anxiously as well. I hope so. Uh, do you feel a different person when you're speaking Portuguese and when you're speaking English? Because I know it's yeah, hard I to do. separate the, the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, you probably do too. Um, I think <laughs> so, we all do. In some, in some ways, yes. Yeah. yeah, no matter how fluent we are, unless we're completely and amazingly bilingual, which almost nobody is, we, we have slightly different ways of approaching language and ourselves. We have a slightly different identity in a different language. 
in Portuguese, just to give you an example, in English, I can imitate people's voices and accents quite well. And I often play around with that. And I can be, you know, sarcastic and ironic very easily, um, a kind of New York sense of humor. But in Portuguese, it's harder for me to do that. Uh, so my sense of humor in, in Portuguese is different. Um, and I also, since the culture here is different and people react differently to humor, I have to be more careful in Portuguese as well, mm -hmm. because, you know, I may need to apologize and say, you know, I was just trying to be funny. I didn't mean to <laughs> offend you. Whereas in English, I'm better able to, to, to gauge what I can say and what I can't say. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, my personality is different. Um, and that's okay. You know, you get used to that when you're living in a foreign country, you, you stop being, I think some people still get frustrated with that. I tend not to, not to worry about it anymore. I am who I am in whatever language I'm talking. <laughs> exactly. Uh, after 30 years in Portugal, was it hard for you to, to relate with your mother country, your motherland, while it was being led by people that you didn't trust, like Trump, for instance, yeah. at, at that time? Yes, it was very hard. Um, there were times, I have to say, when I felt like I didn't know America anymore and that maybe I had lived in illusion while growing up there, thinking America was one thing and discovering it was something else. Um, one of my most down moments and disorienting moments came during the recent election. The first results in many states like Pennsylvania and Georgia that would later go to Biden showed that Trump was winning at the beginning and that he might even win the election. And I was extremely, I grew, grew very upset and depressed. And I thought, you know, I just don't understand America. I don't, I don't know this country. I can't relate to these people who vote for him, uh, who vote for a sociopath, who's ignorant and racist and repulsive. I, I just don't understand it. And so, yes, there've been many times over the past four years that I thought, you know, I'm an American, but and I love certain parts of America. I love the national parks and I love, you know, parts of New York and San Francisco sure. was wonderful to me. But maybe maybe that period of America being a wonderful, interesting place is over. And I think that may be true. I mean, I think the next decades are going to belong to other countries. And that, a, well, what, what do and you that think Trump's that... elect Trump's election wasn't part a symptom of the fact that the age of the American empire is over. It's over. And people don't want to get used to that. They want to fight against that. They want to elect someone who says America is still great and number one, and we're going to rule mm -hmm. the world. And it's going to take Americans a while to get used to the idea that maybe they won't run the world in the rest of the 21st century. So, so you think Biden is just the beginning of the change? It will continue well, changing with someone, someone else in office? I hope so. I mean, I hope we can change course with Biden and move toward a more compassionate, understanding, empathetic, empathetic country, a country with a better health care system for everyone. I think COVID-19 has proven that we all in this world need a health care system that will provide good medications and vaccines to everyone. Because if certain poor countries don't have health care systems, then, they're, then the virus is going to get out of control and they're going to develop variants that threaten everyone. 
So a bad healthcare system, an inadequate healthcare system in India, Brazil, and parts of Africa is a threat to all of us. And not just for ethical reasons, but even for just logistical reasons, we need to reduce the gap between the rich and the poor all over the world and make this world a more equal place for everyone. If not, we're, you know, COVID-19 is just the start. There's going to be other pandemics. Oh, let's just hope they take some time to get there because we're still I trying so. to recover from the first pandemic. And even now in the, in the Lisbon area and in Portugal in general, we're going back to those numbers that are very worrying. So we're, we're all doing the best we can, we hope. Uh, so coming back to your relationship with Portugal, uh, I know you did a, a great effort to, to participate, to adapt, to learn the language, and you did it very well. So you must be really proud, even four years ago when you got the Medal of Honor for the city of mm -hmm. Porto. Mm -hmm. I am proud. I mean, um, you know, pride is an interesting uh, emotion. I hear people say all the time, you know, I'm proud to be an American, I'm proud to be Portuguese. And I don't quite understand that. I was born in America. I had no choice. Mm -hmm. For me, pride is something else. Pride is something that you work for, that you struggle for, that you suffer to, to achieve. And once you've been able to get part of the way there or all the way there, then you feel pride because it's an accomplishment. So I'm proud of my novels because they took an enormous mm -hmm. amount of work. And was, it was very difficult for me to be published. And I managed to keep my sanity. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of learning to speak Portuguese because that was extremely difficult for me. And there were many moments when I felt like giving up. Um, and I'm proud that I've adapted to this country pretty well because there were times when I had no friends and I was very isolated and I didn't know if I'd be able to survive here. And so, yes, um, I love that. I, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And, um, you know, and I'm proud of Alex because things weren't easy for him too. moving to Portugal. He grew up in Mozambique, so that was a foreign country, too. Exactly. So I'm very proud of him being able to, you know, do his science and create a new center for scientific research. And eventually now he's part of parliament. He's a deputy in parliament, an MP. So, you know, we both we're both very lucky. We've we've led lives, the lives that we wanted to have. And there's not anything better than that. You have a, a very beautiful history, the both of you. Thank and you. And I congratulate you for that. You've been together just for as many years that I have been alive for 42 years <laughs> <laughs> since you met the year I was born, like I was saying yeah. a bit ago. Uh, and that's a really beautiful story. Uh, so you. congratulations. I hope that in the future we can count on um, your work and your books and your new publishings uh, for children and for adults as well, uh, rather sooner than later. Hope Even so. with, all the, with all this going on. And uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you here in More Than Words. Thank you. I'm very grateful to be able to share my experiences with your spectators and viewers and listeners. And, and thanks so much for the invitation and for doing the interview with me. Thank you. See you next time. Bye-bye. See you next time. Thank you.